the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Live? Is this thing live? Wait a minute here. Let me... Okay, pulse looks normal. Uh, let's check the blood pressure. Yeah, blood pressure. Okay, I guess so. <laughs> Just confirming truth in advertising, right? Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Of course, we're live today. It is the ninth day of August, in case you've lost track. It is Wednesday already. And at five after the hour, five o'clock, welcome to this edition of Lifeline. We're here Each weekday afternoon from 5 until 7, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. And by golly, we've been doing that for like 34 years now. They've moved the building twice, and we just keep following, (laughs) finding our way in. Hey, we got a great show lined up for you. A little bit later on tonight, Mabel Nan is going to join us. She is one of the contributors to the series we've been doing uh, called Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success. And boy, if you are tired and worn out and you feel as if this role as superwoman, super wife, super mother leaves you feeling very drained and extremely underappreciated, maybe even alone. Well, Mabel's going to have some good and encouraging insights for you. And we get to that conversation coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to begin, though, Talking about a bit of a brief military history, and anybody who knows their military knows that uh, for the longest time, certainly speaking specifically to the United States military, at one time we were something like the 11th, or I I think even in the, the later teens in terms of military might going into World War II, our U.S. military was was fairly broken. Um, we had been a military that up until that point had been largely race-based. Then during World War II, when there was such a demand for fighters, the U.S. military began to realize that there were soldiers, Japanese descent, Americans, who could fight as brilliantly and valiantly as any Caucasian soldier, uh, ditto African-Americans who fought during World War II, won some pretty spectacular battles, I might add, and slowly we began to see a shift. Didn't happen fast, seldom does in the military, but over time, the recognition of the importance of a merit-based advancement system in the United States military became front of center. And you would think, good, that's that's good progress. Well, sometimes we take two steps forward and sometimes we take three steps backwards. And I think my first guest tonight is going to suggest uh, that that some of the recent movement going on within the military, and we'll cite an example in the Air Force, would suggest we're about to take some giant steps backwards. Joining me now, Lieutenant Colonel, currently with the Texas State Guard, 
brilliantly served the United States Army for 21 years, now retired, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives in Florida. Pleased to have join us on the program, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. And uh, such a delight to have you join us. We miss you in Congress. That was a short stint. How do we get you back in Congress again? <laughs> well, Craig, it's good to be with you. And this, uh, it, it kind of became a short stint when your own party redistricts you out and you're the number one target of the Democrat Party back in 2012. So I got a good taste of voter fraud back then. Uh, we still almost won that re-election race, but we came up short by 0.49%. But, you know, I still continue to stand up and fight for my country, uh, regardless of being in Congress or out of Congress. Well, I, I understand that, and, and I certainly applaud that. I'm, I'm just commenting that uh, yeah. your, your tenure in the, uh, in the United States House of Representatives was noted even by folks clear out here in California in terms of the quality of the caliber that you were working and doing for uh, the Americans, uh, taxpayers and voters. And we appreciate that. Hey, you continue on in in active duty, as I mentioned, though you had retired with um, multiple decorations after a a brilliant 21 year um, career with the, um, as I mentioned, the United States Army. You're back in saddle again as of 2019. I understand you are now serving in the Texas State Guard there again as a uh, lieutenant colonel and so you're you're uniquely qualified i think to speak to the issue that i kind of broached at the top of the program tonight and mm-hmm. this notion that there seems to be this this paradigm shift and not in a good direction going on in the united states military tell us what's going on well you're absolutely right and i think i can speak firsthand to that because my father uh, United States Army Corporal Herman West Sr. Uh, served in the military, in the Army, a segregated Army, in World War II, and he was the reason why I became an officer. Uh, my older brother was a Marine combat infantryman uh, that was wounded in a place called Quezon during the Vietnam War. So we have a history of service, sacrifice, and commitment. And now my nephew is a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, and he is commanding an artillery battalion just the same as I did. So when I think about the Tuskegee Airmen, and my godfather, William Sticky Jackson, was a Tuskegee Airman, the 332nd uh, Fighter Squadron, you know, they were requested uh, by bomber uh, pilots and bomber squadrons, not because of the color of their skin, but because of their skill and their ability in the air. They never lost a bomber in, in combat, and I think that that is what we want to get back to, is a merit-based uh, military, a military that's based upon... Uh, your skills and your capability, a military that's based upon your standards, a standard that is achievable, but you have to push yourself to achieve that standard, not one where we, you know, talk about equity and talk about equality of outcomes and we talk about inclusion uh, when we really don't understand that that is degradation on our military readiness. Uh, You look at what is happening now with this cultural Marxism, DEI, and everything that's in our military. You can't tell one group of people that you're bad, you will always be bad because you're an oppressor, and another group of people that you're a victim, uh, you're oppressed, and then think you're going to have a cohesive fighting force. And I tell you, that's one of the reasons why in the 50-year history of the all-volunteer military, we are now seeing in the last couple of years the inability to make the recruitment and retention goals. And, you know, that is so disquieting, particularly in light of everything going on in the world stage today. And, Mm -hmm. And we're looking 
looking at, you know, the, the old adage, real and present danger from avowed enemies of ours. Yes, even our number one trading partner, I think, arguably, uh, it sits in that category, speaking specifically about communist China. Then we add to that all that's been going on in, in Europe in relationship to uh, Russia and on and on the list goes. And, it, and it's interesting that you note, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, that we, we when we made this transition from conscription to all volunteer, um, make no mistake about it, all branches of the military really attracted very quality people who not only loved their country, wanted to serve their country, believed that they had something to contribute. Uh, there's oftentimes this misnomer that, well, this is sort of the last resort. If you're a loser and you, you can't succeed in anything else, and you can't pass an entrance exam uh, to go to a university, then, you know, join the military. Nonsense. Uh, most of these men and women are highly intelligent, highly decorated, and have served this uh, nation uh, with tremendous degrees of sacrifice, both in times of war and and outside of war. Although, as you know, we've been on a war footing here up until our withdrawal from Afghanistan for for decades. That said, this notion of all of a sudden now we can't attract enough young men and women to the United States military. They've got to be taking note of the fact that there is this paradigm shift to which I referred earlier. That is less about the 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 nature of your character, your your skills, talents, and abilities, but more about the color of your skin. Why are we going backwards all of a sudden? Well, that's just the nature of Marxism. Marxism is about division. Uh, it was created along socioeconomic uh, lines, but the Marxists of today are going to use, and that's why we call it culture Marxism, to divide us upon racial lines. And who would want to join a military where that's the focus? Who would want to join a military where you have the current nominee, nominee to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Air Force uh, Chief of Staff General Charles Q. Brown, who has said he only wants 46% of white fighter pilots in the Air Force. Why would you restrict, you know, uh, to a certain number or quota, you know, what color fighter pilots you want in the in the Air Force? So when you hear these things or when you know what happened in Afghanistan, and I don't know how many of your listeners saw the uh, the hearing and the testimony of those Gold Star families who lost their loved ones on that fateful day at Harmony Karzai International Airport, a place I know very well. I spent two and a half years in Afghanistan. And to hear their their stories and to hear how they were lied to and hear how they are disrespected and dismissed or the fact that we know that in the Army, uh, soldiers are being told to go on food stamps to provide for their families. And there was a story that just came out today, uh, Fort Hood, Texas, now Fort Cavazos, that was my last duty assignment, where uh, single soldiers that live on the on the installation, uh, they are, you know, suffering because they don't have enough food service operations open. You know, we used to call them the mess halls. They don't have enough dining facilities open to take care of the soldiers. So why would you want to join an organization that is more so worried about, uh, you know, murdering unborn babies in the womb or more so worried about gender transition surgeries than just the basics of making sure that if you're a single soldier in the barracks, you got a place to go eat. Uh, so those are just a cacophony of issues that are facing uh, these young people. And also understand, Craig, that in the age group of 18 to 26 or 27, less than 30 percent 
of young people in that age group are qualified to join the military. So this is a highly competent military, and we're we're just not training people, and we're not caring for people uh, to the point where they want to be a part of it. And we're making it more and more difficult for the best and, and best and brightest to to succeed. And and why would we ever mm-hmm. do that? I mean, put that in context for those of us that are yes. old enough to remember uh, between the the Afghan War, the Kuwait War, mm-hmm. going back prior to that, well, prior to that, uh, Vietnam, you might even be old enough eavesdropping on this conversation tonight to remember uh, places like Korea. Why would the military not first and foremost say, we want the sharpest, the best, the brightest, the smartest to be in all of those positions of responsibility and authority as opposed to saying, well, we didn't hit our quota today. Do we really want a quota-based military? And I know some are going to say, well, well, uh, Lieutenant Colonel West, you and Craig, you know, you you guys are, are beating up on the Air Force because he, after all, uh, was in the Army. And longtime listeners of the program know that both my grandfather served um, in the United States Navy during World War II. So you guys are just biased against the Air Force. No, not at all. Put this in context. Is this sure. the kind of military that you want standing in the gap between you and an enemy? Let's talk about this. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. With us today, we are honored to have Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, currently serving in the United States Texas State Guard and uh, served faithfully with uh, multiple decorations for uh, more than 21 years in uh, the United States Army. And we're talking about the dangers of a integrated military, but not in the way that you're thinking, Bizarre. We'll come back with more details and why this is so risky to the safety and security of the United States as our conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking today with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who is a coincidentally also the executive director of the American Constitutional Rights Union. And Lieutenant Colonel, you recently penned an article for the uh, ACRU's website where you raised many of these issues. And you made the point, and I'd like to have you elaborate on this for the benefit and understanding of our listeners. You made the point in saying, and I'm quoting, the military is a discriminatory organization because its mission is not about a profits and loss statement. What do you mean by that? Well, the military is a discriminatory organization. If you have flat feet, you can't join the military. If you have asthma, you can't join the military. Uh, as a commander, I put people out of the military because uh, they were overweight. Uh, they couldn't pass a physical fitness test. So we're very discriminatory and uh and who we are and what we allow and accept. We have standards because our profit loss uh, statement is not based upon dollars and cents. It's based upon lives. And we want to have the best qualified people. And, you know, going back as we closed our previous segment, uh, you know, I I can bash the Army, too. Uh, The (laughs) current Secretary of the Army, I mean, Christine Warmoth, came out and said that she wants to recruit a new uh, a new soldier, uh, and that she is not looking at recruiting soldiers from families that have generationally served the military. So that means a family like mine. 
So why would you not want to continue a legacy of service, sacrifice, and commitment in families? What What is it that you want to go out there and recruit? What are you calling these new soldiers? And so when you talk about, you brought up uh, integrating, uh, this whole thing about inclusion, it is, it is inclusion by lowering our standards. You know, one of the pitfalls of this whole gender dysphoria movement in the military is that these individuals can request for and receive an exemption from any physical fitness uh, training and testing. Now, how are you going to have a, a strong and qualified military if you have a percentage of people that don't have to maintain any type of physical readiness and therefore they're not going to be deployable uh, uh, for, for any type of operation? So that's how this very warped and woke military, uh, this ideological agenda of the progressive socialist left is going to undermine our national security. You know, they're very good with pronouns. Uh, the Air Force Academy, you can't say uh, sir or ma'am or, or mom and dad uh, in the uh, in the Army. You know, we've got these issues with, uh, you know, these people that want to have their gender transition surgeries paid for. The Navy right now does not have enough amphibious uh, landing ships to uh, transport the Marines. Uh, and the Marines, that's their number one uh, mission, is in conducting amphibious assaults. So who is paying attention to what is going on in our country? China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Islamic jihadists. You know, by the way, we just uh, had camera footage and surveillance footage of uh, cartel members uh, operating on our side of the border here in Texas, carrying weapons and also body armor. So we, we have some very serious national security and readiness issues we have to confront. And it seems as if this sort of, uh, you know, newfangled, touchy-feely, uh, psychobabble edition of the the United States military, when you've got top brass making these kind of comments, I mean, I, I, I've mm-hmm. got to believe that everybody driving on San Francisco Bay Area freeways probably, you know, wound up putting their fists through the, the radio speaker in their dashboard if they have had multiple generations of service in whatever branch of the United States military. Quite often, and this is not to single them out, but quite often, they are some of the most dedicated people because there's such a, a sense of familial honor that ties into yes. multi-generational service. And so in, instead of saying that, seeing that as a good thing, they turn it into something bad. And I've got to believe that at multiple layers, listen, you and I are talking about this on the radio, clearly our enemies also know what's going on. And this has to give yeah. them a tremendous sense of comfort. Yes, it does. I mean, China knows that it now has more surface uh, vessels than our United States Navy does. Uh, and the Pacific is a very big ocean. And the last time we saw an Asian nation invest heavily in its maritime forces, I think everyone can remember what happened on that day that will live in infamy, December 7, 1941. And so history has a way of repeating itself. So, yes, they are paying attention. They know that when you look at the Heritage Foundation Index of Military Readiness, that uh, we are below average for our military readiness, and we're not improving. And this is not something that the Biden administration seems to be focused on. It's not something that even the senior-level leadership of the military seems to be focused on. They're more so focused on implementing an ideological agenda in our military than being prepared to, you know, support and defend the Constitution and our way of life and defend our interests across the globe. And when you look at nuclear-capable nations like communist China, like Russia, like North Korea, 
and then you see what's going on with the saber rattling taking place. Of course, North Korea does this almost ad nauseum. Now we're seeing China do it on an increasing basis in relationship to Taiwan, undoubtedly emboldened by some of the acts of uh, of Mr. Putin on the other, the opposite continent. Uh, this is very disturbing, particularly when you know we we learn some very difficult lessons in the early days of World War II when yes, we, we woke up one day and realized we're not ready for any of this. We were able mm-hmm. to rebuild our military to levels of where it was during World War One and beyond, and went on to you know literally become a, what did Roosevelt call us the the arsenal for democracy and and literally save not only all of Europe but the vast majority of the Pacific. And yet here we are, 70, 80 years later, about to repeat some of the mistakes of 1937, 1938. It doesn't make any sense. You're absolutely right. And that really is where we are when you think about 1938, 1939. And so when I think about the United States Army's uh, first engagement of World War II, and that was Kazarine Pass in 1942, it was a debacle. We were absolutely decimated and destroyed by Rommel's North Africa Corps, and that's why Eisenhower decided to bring in that horse cavalry guy by the name of George Patton, because he knew that we had to you know, quickly recover from that. But I want the, the folks, your listeners there in Northern California to understand something, that right now, just to the north of you, off the uh, the coast of Alaska, yep. Russian and Chinese naval uh, uh, flotilla, they're conducting maneuvers and exercises. So what does that tell you? That tells you that we have an enemy that understands that right now our maritime capability and capacity, as everyone knows, is not up to par, not up to standard. And they are pushing the issue. Well, they're going to see how far they can push. Uh, no doubt about that. And mm-hmm. and if anybody thinks that the topic of Taiwan, for example, is a settled issue, uh, it, it isn't by a long shot. And, and it ought to instill, I hate to say it, but we need to be frank here, it ought to instill fear in the heart of every American, particularly for those of us uh, in, in the, the largely reachable um, West and East Coast. But the, the broader mm-hmm. notion here of uh, this this troubling trend within multiple branches of the United States military. I would imagine that the old guard, a lot, a lot of your colleagues, um, and again, for benefit of listeners, we're talking with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who served in the United States Army honorably for 21 years, retiring in 2004, and then um, once again returning to active service in the Texas State Guard. But during your tenure, there's got to be a lot of your peers that would absolutely be losing their mind over even the suggestion that we head in this kind of direction. I mean, who's ever talked about setting a racial cap inside of any branch of the United States military unless this was 1912? Oh, we we absolutely are. And you can go to any uh, military Internet site where veterans are having conversations and we are completely livid about what we see happening in the military. And we're trying to speak up. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we started at the uh, American Constitutional Rights Union is a constitutional conservative veterans organization called the Committee to Support Defend. Because, as I stress, just because you take your uniform off, does 
does not mean that your oath to support and defend the Constitution and stand in the gap is over. Uh, that that has no statute of limitations. So we want veterans to continue to get engaged and let their voices be heard, especially when it comes to our military readiness and our national security. Well, we appreciate what you're doing, and uh, it's a shame that these matters even need to be called attention to, let alone discussed. I mean, anybody capable of reading headline stories can tell you that this is not the time to engage in social experimentation in the United States military. But here we are, and that means all of us, um, whether you have served uh, honorably in the United States military or you're just a, a lifelong civilian, this affects all of us. This affects the safety and security of every American. So we need to be letting Congress know what we think about this, and uh, you can certainly get better educated. Check out the ACRU, I think American Constitutional Rights Union, the ACRU.org, fascinating article by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West called The Pitfalls of Identity Politics. And boy, when you start to mix that in with the military dangerous combination. Our thanks again um, to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West for being with us, and thank you very much for not only your your previous duty, but your ongoing duty to our nation. There's Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. 533 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, oddly enough, talking earlier about World War II, there was a time when women left domestic life to essentially become the lifeblood of the defense ministry, industry rather, during the Second World War. Women have been expected to do more since then, frequently with far less than their male counterparts. They still work, they're entrepreneurs, industry leaders, business owners, plus they often raise the kids, run the household, do the shopping, take the kids to piano lessons, volunteer at the local elementary school, and run Sunday school department at church. Is it any wonder a lot of women are worn out or in the midst of all of that busyness and organized chaos, feeling very, very alone, unsupported, and um, feel as if they're fighting an uphill battle? My guest tonight knows a bit about what that's all about. She is one of the contributors to the series we've been doing called Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success, newly released by Bold Vision Books. And we are pleased to have join us contributor Mabel Nainan. Mabel, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I'm so happy to be talking with you. It's my pleasure. You, um, in the book, share some of your own experiences of this sense of frustration of being alone. And, of course, there can be a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, Some of the busyness and craziness that I referred to in my opening uh, remarks, which certainly many women eavesdropping on our conversation tonight can can well then both attest to and identify with. But but even in the case of of simply dealing with stories Forms of life or coming to a country for the first time and feeling like uh, an outsider, not having family and the, the challenges of all of that, which certainly goes to the heart of, of your experience. Walk us through what those feelings were like and most importantly, how God has helped you overcome them. Sure. Um, like you mentioned, I did move from India, from another country to America, and this was back in 2008 and I moved as soon as I got married. Uh, At first I was excited because I was starting a new life with my husband and I was 
also excited about moving to the United States, you know, the land of opportunities um, and dreams. Uh, and, and so I was very excited. So very quickly, um, that turned into disillusionment because I realized that um, I was new, I was different, I was far from home. I did not have my family around. So physically, I felt um, all alone in a new place. I think what added to that was also the fact that I started to feel uh, over the next few months um, insignificant because I was always doing work, some kind of work in India. I was involved in ministry. Uh, but here I was just by myself, um, still figuring out, uh, you know, how to get to work or how to be involved uh, in a church community. And so all that, I think, added to my uh, loneliness. Um, homesickness also, again, amplified that. And um, I know that a lot of people may not, may not relate to my exact experience, but we've all felt lonely in some way or the other, just like you mentioned, sometimes it's craziness. Sometimes it's also um, having people just betray us or feeling like we're standing all alone um, and people are wrongly accusing us of something. Um, or when we bear burdens alone, uh, whether you know, and single parents come to mind or if you're caregivers of someone and you've been doing it a long time, you're the sole caregiver for your spouse or your parent or child. Or when we work alone, and that's something also I face and I continue to face because I'm an author and uh, primarily uh, authors work alone. They sit on a computer and work. And so there are different kinds of loneliness. Um, and uh, my experience has only brought me closer to God. I realized uh, that the purpose of loneliness was to, the purpose of my loneliness specifically was to draw me nearer to God and to uh, make me rely on Him even more than I did. And um, I tasted God's goodness when I was lonely, and it tasted sweeter. You know, I experienced His supernatural provision and, he and help in ways I had not experienced before. Um, because in those lonely times, all I had was God and I cried out to God. And so I felt like he was closer to me. And so those moments, and every time I continue to feel lonely, I lean into God, and I feel like those experiences really strengthen my faith. I think it's important, too, for listeners eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Mabel, to understand that there's, there's loneliness that people are familiar with, meaning a sense of isolation. You're by yourself. Maybe you are recently widowed, whatever the case might be. But there can also be a sense of loneliness when you're surrounded by people and, and lots of busyness going on in your life and yet feeling terribly alone. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why many leaders uh, do feel lonely. It's just that some of them don't admit it. We don't like to come out and say it out loud because uh, we do feel lonely, even if our schedules are busy and we're surrounded by people. And I do face that from time to time. Uh, but what helps me is to have that um, time with God on a regular basis. 
um, because you know even David said in the Psalms, "God, I feel lonely. I feel afflicted." Uh, but he turned to God and he lamented um, his loneliness in in God's presence. I think that's what I always try to keep in mind, and I try to follow is to have my regular time with God, so that Scripture can remind me that the Holy Spirit lives in me and that I'm never alone. And and it's so easy to sometimes get caught up in all that busyness and you feel as if, well, I, I can't possibly stop to pray. I don't have time for that. Or or I'd love to get into the Word, but I, I'll do it tomorrow because today I'm on a deadline. And this could be household-related, family-related projects. This could be something that's work-related. can even be a person, I would suppose, that has been burdened down by a sense of, of depression. Uh, maybe you've been fighting, fighting of financial challenges or health issues, or maybe there are things going on in your marriage relationship that that is really putting a tremendous amount of pressure upon you. Oftentimes, the very activity that will help us to address that sense of loneliness and get get in contact with God in a, in a significant way, we, we kind of tend to put that by the wayside. We give mental ex- assent to it, we acknowledge it, but then we oftentimes lack the discipline to actually get in there and do it. Do you think that's true? Absolutely, that's true. And that's... Um you know, something that I have experienced from time to time. I'm also a seminary student, and sometimes I get so, so caught up in my assignments, and here I am studying the Bible, but if I don't have my quiet time with God, if I don't have my uh, my the time spending in prayer, studying God's Word, and with God's people, then, um, you know, all that is pointless, uh, because my soul is not at rest. And my, and I'm just caught up in so many different things that God is not first place in my life, and I'm really not um, valuing and appreciating that friendship with God, like David says. And, you know, God not only wants to engage in fellowship with us and relationship with us, but also wants to carry our burdens and help mm-hmm. release some of the weightiness of whatever it is we might be dealing with or experiencing. And yet, if you don't take the time to engage in that relationship with him, uh, you're going to continue to feel like you're doing battle and doing battle alone. Mabel Ninon is with us today, contributor to the recently released Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success, newly released by Bold Vision Books. We'll take a brief time out when we come back. How to overcome a lot of those challenges related to engaging in the discipline necessary to get tight with God so that you know you're not alone. And as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Mabel Ninan is with us today. She is a contributor to the newly released Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success. We've been talking about that sense of loneliness, the kind of loneliness that, that may attend to the individual who is literally alone. Um, Maybe you've lost a spouse um, or you have relocated for work purposes and now suddenly you're in a new community. You don't really know anybody there. And so you come home every day to an empty house, an empty apartment, along with those that might be surrounded by friends and loved ones and co-workers and a gaggle full of kids in the house. And yet so overwhelmed by just day-to-day life and feeling as if you're underappreciated, if not appreciated at all, 
so overwhelmed and as a result feeling terribly lonely. And of course, as our guest tonight has, has suggested, uh, Mabel, the idea of the necessity in these times to draw closer to God. And in fact, God is wanting that kind of intimacy with us all the time. And she, we, we should be the first one. Uh, he should be the first one that we run to. And then oftentimes when we give mental assent to the need for things like prayer, going to church, Bible study, things of that sort, uh, heaven knows if you feel that you're either paralyzed by loneliness and stuck in the house or paralyzed because you've got so much going on, you feel lonely, but you just can't quite carve out the time. These really do serve as stumbling blocks, not only for our relationship, but cause us to be trapped in that cycle of loneliness. Isn't that true? Yep, that's true. Absolutely. So give us some thoughts in terms of how do you break out of that cycle? How did you, in your your case, begin to address that? Uh, Sure. I can... um probably talk about uh, solutions or how we can get out of this um, and give your listeners two tips. One is ask for help and the second thing is offer help. So when I was new, like completely brand new to the country, um, I still signed up for ways to volunteer and help others out. I wanted to get out of my bubble, get out of being in my own head and volunteer. So I signed up to write, you know, I wrote articles for a new fitness uh, organization. I wrote emergency documents. I helped out with some seniors and I love dogs. I went and volunteered with um, animal rescue organization. I didn't even know, I was not yet settled in the place. I didn't know my way around, but I forced myself to get out there and offer help to be useful, to be helpful to others. Um, second, ask for help. Um, and, you know, for some of us who have a fierce independent streak, it is so difficult to say I need help. But that's what I did. I reached out to others that I know are also probably going through the same thing like me, other immigrants, um, other Indians living in different parts of the world, and and just talking with them. Or I would call home and regularly and keep in touch with my friends Um, and to ask for help, offer help and um, get plugged into a church community where you can do both these things. So that would be my practical advice. And, you know, I think it's so important. You you touch on the notion of kind of getting out of your head, your space, your zone, and focusing less on how you're feeling, that sense of isolation and loneliness, and instead focusing on the needs of others. And what a wonderful thing to go and, and volunteer at a, a rescue mission, for example, uh, or volunteer at church, or, or uh, you know, go and visit uh, elderly folks, get involved in a reading program for the blind, whatever it might be that shifts that focus from your own set of circumstances instead to helping others, and in doing so, how God comes in and fills that vacuum, fills that void. Yeah, yeah, I think, and that is probably um, very difficult for some of us to do, and um, it was not easy for me, and there were some days where I did not even want to get out of bed. But uh, maybe find someone to pray with and tell someone about it um, and partner with someone if you can't just do it by yourself. Or I signed up for organizations and I committed to a certain time because that I knew would force me to really get up and be there 
because I told them that I would be there. I love that idea. And it 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 really then gives you a motivation to kind of draw you out, uh, which is really what the individual who is who's facing this challenge of loneliness really needs. Yeah, yeah. And then when you get out there and you start, you know, actually volunteering your time and who knows, some of these folks that you're helping might become good friends, um, you know, and then you get to see other perspectives and sometimes you meet people who are in the same boat as you or they are going through a similar situation and they can relate with you. And so you, by wanting to help others and getting out of your loneliness, um, you can find yourself surrounded with, with friendships and uh, a, a good community. And I, another thought that comes to mind, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about those that are caught up in a lot of busyness. And, and this could even be the the working entrepreneur who is trying to run a business, um, maybe a single person, but is at it in the office and dealing with clients and customers uh, from the, the beginning of the, the rise of the sun to the setting thereof and then some, and feels as if they're kind of caught on this treadmill, but they don't know how to get out. And you really need to force yourself to make time, don't you? Particularly for the busy person that's got so much on their agenda, and yet, even though they feel like they're keeping busy, that that should address the loneliness, it really fails to do so. Do you have to be quite purposeful then in that sense, almost as if you, as you suggest, that you have to force yourself to break out of those habits, to change your behavior? Absolutely, and uh, find like-minded people, uh, people who can understand you and where you can talk about what you're going through because sometimes we can find solidarity in our shared uh, suffering or shared uh, problems. Uh, for instance, even if I'm busy during the week with writing schedules and podcasting schedules, I do have a call every Friday with my writing mentor and coach. And, you know, I literally pour out my heart to her about what's going on and we pray with one another or I'm involved with uh, a at least two or three different writer groups. And I've just recently been to a writer's conference and uh, just being there made me feel supported. And I feel like I'm not alone. You know, there are people like me and they understand what I'm going through. And so I had to carve out that time to network uh, with people in the same field or who understand me. Mm. So it's not just getting kind of out of your, your, your isolation and engaging with others, but oftentimes, like in the example that you cite, um, getting engaged with people of like mind that could be from like profession, like interests, like hobbies, whatever it might be, uh, that can not only make the ability to begin easing out of that sense of isolation and loneliness, but as you point out, might put you into a scenario where you end up developing some very rich, very rewarding friendships. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to add one more uh, tip, which something that helps me a lot is to pursue something creative. I forgot to mention this, but apart from volunteering, I also used to take almost uh, one dance class per day when I was new. I found a dance studio nearby, and that's what I used to do in my church, is lead a dance group. And so I would take classes, learn as much as possible, or do something creative. And that also helps a lot to, uh, it contributes to your 
general well-being and your mental health. Some great insights from our guest today. And again, let me mention the the title of the book that we are referring to as part of the series we've been discussing here on Lifeline called Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success, newly published by Bold Vision, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, et cetera, et cetera. You will find out more about Mabel's work as an author. You can check her out online, Mabel Ninan, it's spelled N-I-N-A-N. MabelNinan.com. Mabel, thank you so much for your time and your insights, and uh, congratulations on uh, your contribution to this wonderful and insightful and encouraging book. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.